This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Gibor Basri. I'm a professor of the Graduate School in Astronomy and uh, the former Vice Chancellor for Equity and Inclusion and a member of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We're very pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present to you this afternoon Nina Jablonski, who is this spring's speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of the bequest, I am obliged to, and but happy, to uh, give you some of the verbal information uh, that is also in your program uh, about the endowment and how it came to Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways in which this campus is linked to the history of California and to the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the Gold Rush, where he opened a thriving private practice. In 1885, not long after this place started, he established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, whose name has probably been seen by you in reference to a certain tower in San Francisco, had a very colorful personality, and was also very generous. And she greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley and also make it possible for us to present this uh, series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments for the University of California, and it recognizes the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles. And now a few words about our speaker. Dr. Nina Jablonski is a renowned anthropologist whose current research comprises basic clinical and educational projects. These include a study of the lifestyle and genetic factors that affect vitamin D status in healthy young adults in South Africa, the writing of a graphic novel about skin color for South African middle school children, and the development of a science summer camp curriculum for minority and underserved middle school students in the U.S., Her research is funded by grants from the National Science Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation. She's the author of books A Living Color, The Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color, and Skin, A Natural History, both from the University of California Press. Dr. Jablonski earned her doctorate in anthropology from the University of Washington in 1981 and her undergrad degree from Bryn Mawr College in biology in 1975. She's the Evan Pugh University Professor of Anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University. She's the Director of the Center for Human Evolution and Diversity and the Associate Director of the Huck Institutes of the Life Sciences, both at Penn State, and a Permanent Visiting Fellow at the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Dr. Jablonski has been recognized most recently as the recipient of a 2012 Guggenheim Fellowship for the project Naturalistic Studies of the Dynamics of Vitamin D Status in Human Populations, and a 2005 Alphonse Fletcher Senior Fellowship for the project Improving the Public Understanding of the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. I think it's safe to say she's an expert on her subject for this afternoon. She currently serves as a member of the Scientific Executive Committee for the Leakey Foundation, and a member of the Board for the Behavioral, Cognitive, and Social Sciences of the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Jablonski.
Thank you very much for that generous introduction, Gibor, and thank you, Ellen, for your logistical arrangements. It's a great pleasure to be here and such an honor to be part of the Hitchcock Lecture Series. It's been wonderful to reconnect with colleagues that I've known for years, as well as meet some new young students uh, who hold the promise of the future for all of us. Years ago, people asked me, why, Nina, are you studying skin? Most anthropologists, most paleoanthropologists, study bones or fossils or the genetics of humans, but they don't try to understand aspects of human evolution by looking at skin. First of all, skin isn't preserved in the fossil record, so there are some real shortcomings if you're trying to study the physical remains of skin. But I realized that by overlooking skin, we overlooked uh, probably one of the most important parts of the human body our physical interface with the environment, our protection, our organ of thermoregulation, and our organ of communication via touch and body decoration. By missing out on skin, we missed out on a big part of the study of human evolution. And so despite the, the obstacles I have enjoyed studying the evolution of human skin, and I'm going to share with you over the next few days a little bit of that journey. Today, talking about general aspects of the evolution of human skin, how we came to have naked, potentially sweaty, and extremely colorful skin, and then tomorrow about what skin color means to all of us in terms of our health and our social relationships over centuries and millennia. In 2005, colleagues began to take a little bit more notice of skin. In 2005, the genome of the chimpanzee was published. And everyone looked at this paper with great anticipation because they expected certainly when we compare the genomes of humans and modern, and modern chimps, what we would see are enormous differences in genes dictating the differentiation of the brain or the musculoskeletal system. What was revealed was a surprise to many, but not to me. Because the major set of loci that turned out to be most under, under most rapid evolution in the human genome was that governing the differentiation of the human epidermis. In other words, it was our skin that was the most differentiating part of our genome. This is because having mostly naked body skin is a big departure from the condition present in our primate relatives and our more distant mammalian relatives. Fur and hair does a lot, and without it, we have to compensate in various ingenious biological ways that I'll uh, elaborate on in the next few minutes. So this 
this really got people thinking about the evolution of skin in a much more serious way. And I must say, in the last 12 years since the chimp genome was published, there has been a greater swell of interest in the evolution of skin. One of my favorite visuals is what I call the hairy timeline of human evolution, where we have here at the, at the back end, around seven and a half million years ago, when we last shared a common ancestor with our closest relatives, chimpanzees. And our skin, if we could look at it back then, we reconstruct it to be mostly lightly pigmented and covered with dark hair, that of a chimpanzee today. But through time, and critically, just around two million years ago, we see important changes. And I want to focus on those changes because this is when we really see the transition to what we would call ostensibly modern skin, mostly naked and sweaty and colorful. And it's about this time, around two million years ago, and here represented by this impeccable partial skeleton from Kenya, we find an early member of the genus Homo, a beautiful skeleton representing one of our ancient ancestors. What's important for you here is that this this individual, a young man, has very modern body proportions, quite different from that of the Australopithecine ancestors from previous millions of years. And the lifestyle of this hominin is what sets him apart and what sets the genus Homo apart because it is these long legs, the broad pelvis, the relatively short arms that indicate that this is a person with a modern build, a strider, potentially a runner, and very different from any kind of slightly more hesitant biped or more arboreally competent biped that existed previously. We reconstructed the skin of this individual to be really mostly naked and darkly pigmented. But here, what I want to talk about is why do we reconstruct this as mostly naked skin at this time? There are lots of primates that live in East Africa and other hot environments that run around a lot that have lots of hair. Why did we lose most of our body hair? We know from studying human physiology, as well as the physiology of lots of mammals, that basically having hair is great protection against abrasion, great insulation, physical insulation against cold and temperature fluctuations, but it physically impedes the process of the evaporation of sweat. So even in those mammals that can produce sweat on their surface, if they sweat into the fur and the fur gets wet, their skin cannot actually become cool. In other words, the purpose of sweating, which is evaporative cooling, is lost. What happens if you belong to a lineage like primates where most excess body heat is lost through the skin? Here are our buddies that have a lot of hair, that run around a lot. A beautiful antelope on the right, a domestic dog on the left. 
they liberate excess body heat in a very different way. The carnivore on the left here is able to pant. The beautiful antelope on the right here has a, a wonderful big nose with lots of veins and the inspired air that gets brought in through the wet nasal mucosa, cools the veins that drain back to the proximity of the brain and help to locally cool the brain. So both of these animals can get quite hot, but they have local cooling mechanisms in their head that help their brains to stay cool when they're exerting themselves, especially in a hot environment. You would think that our primate cousins, our hairy primate cousins, would do similar. But even in this long-faced baboon, we don't have any structures similar to those that we find in hooved mammals or in the panting respiration of dogs. Instead, even our close relative, the baboon and chimpanzees for that matter, have to lose heat from their body surface through radiant cooling, through radiant uh, heat loss, and evaporation. So they lack these specialized methods of cooling. When a baboon runs full pelt for a long distance, it overheats and it stops. In the evolution of the genus Homo, we find the evolution of a primate that is walking and running and foraging and escaping from predators and possibly hunting and needing to be able to sustain energetic locomotion for a long period of time. There was natural selection at this time for the loss of body hair in order to facilitate evaporative cooling. So we hypothesized years ago that the loss of functional body hair was related to the needs of thermoregulation. So here we have this, this beautiful, young, early member of the genus Homo with mostly functionally naked skin. And where did the sweat glands come from? We know that in most mammals, Sweat glands of the kind that we have all, of our, all over our body are found only on the surfaces of the palms and the soles of the feet. So how did human primates manage to get all of these sweat glands all over the place? This has been a question that has pressed people for decades. We didn't lose all of our hair. Rather, we reduced the size of the body hair so that when you look at your own body hair, it's this little sort of measly little things coming out of hair follicles. The hair follicles are enormously important, but where did the sweat glands come from? And this, as I say, was an unanswered question for years until literally just a few months ago when my colleague Elaine Fuchs and her, uh, her postdoc, Catherine Liu, published a beautiful paper in Science about how this differentiation occurs in early human development. Long story short, what happens is that there is an important bone morphogenetic protein, BMP, that determines where these hair follicles and sweat glands are going to be uh, differentiated on the surface of the body. And then at a very critical time in embryonic development, there is a little tilt toward 
BMP in differentiating toward sweat gland development as opposed to hair follicles. So what could have been a a terminal hair like in other primates becomes a sweat gland instead. A beautiful piece of evolutionary developmental biological regulation. And voila, sweat glands all over. What do we do with that naked skin? Well, we sweat a lot, yes, but it's really important to recognize that in our repertoire of behaviors as primates, we engage in lavish amounts of meaningful touch. Although we don't engage in it so much these days except with our smartphones, um, gaining or, or touching one another has been an important part of our communication repertoire for millions of years, long before we existed as a human lineage. But with hairless skin, the surface area for this communication has become ever much larger. This surface of of communication is an important portal for social bonding in early human development and continues to be very important throughout our ontogeny and throughout our lives. So even though we legislate against touch in many workplaces and look down upon it, it is an essential part of the human communications repertoire. And we know now that withholding touch from infants, withholding affectionate touch, actually stifles infant growth, not just emotional growth, but physical growth. And so infant massage and and, and affiliative touch are now championed not only for infants, but for people throughout the life course. But the loss of hair had many other consequences. And although I could go into this alarmingly long, I won't. But think about when you lose the ability to express heightened emotions, especially fear and anxiety and anger, through piloerection, the standard mode that a mammal uses to show its level of sympathetic excitation, raising its hackles, raising its body hair, what do we do? I mean, we can raise our hairs, but who's going to see them, right? Well, we have something that compensates. There's no Botox there. Uh, We have enhanced facial expressions that help us to communicate from a distance what our states of emotion are, what our emotional intentions are. And at times that we don't know, we don't know how distant this was, but humans with naked skin began to decorate themselves. We recognize in the archaeological record we have traces of pieces of ochre dated from about 70,000 years ago from South Africa. We have other pieces of pigment from elsewhere in the world, very ancient, some 50 to 25,000 years old. I would guess that these pieces of ochre, at least some of them, were used to decorate human bodies. And that even before that, humans who had a sense of self and image were decorating themselves with clay, mud, and 
making meaningful marks on their bodies. I can never prove this, but I would think from the evidence of all the symbolic behavior that we see in the lives of early members of the genus Homo, early Homo sapiens, even Homo neanderthalensis, that over 100,000 years ago, people were decorating the surfaces of their naked bodies in significant ways. Tattooing is universal, and people have been marking themselves, Utsi, the so-called Iceman, from about 5,000 years ago, uh, had, a tat- had several tattoos on his body, and modern, many modern people, including many of our students at Berkeley and elsewhere, have lavish numbers and varieties of tattoos. It has been one of the most fundamental modes of communication and self-expression, with the very permanence of it being its signal feature. But I'm interested now in turning to the question of how we came to have this beautiful range of colors. And it's been widely recognized that, at least since the mid-20th century, that it's not just sunlight, but it's ultraviolet radiation within sunlight that has been the most important factor, physical factor, correlated with skin pigmentation in the human lineage. In our work, we have been able to take advantage of databases that weren't available to workers in the mid-20th century. Thanks to NASA's several generations of total ozone mapping spectrometer satellites, we're able to create images of ultraviolet radiation at the Earth's surface. This one happens to be annual average UVR, but we can actually get wavelength-specific maps now. This map is created by my colleague and husband and main collaborator in our studies, George Chaplin. And what we're able to see in this is more or less what you'd predict, that the highest levels of ultraviolet radiation are close to the equator, but that humid areas like the tropics here, the tropical forests of Africa, of Amazonia, of Southeast Asia, have rather lower levels than the hot pink and red areas of the Sahara and the Horn of Africa. That there are very high levels in the Andes and also in the Himalayas, very high altitude, even though not high latitude. So it was in this environment in equatorial and eastern Africa that we think the human lineage and that Homo and Homo sapiens are emerging, an environment of intense ultraviolet radiation. And ultraviolet radiation comes in a variety of forms, the most biologically significant because they come to Earth, UVA and UVB. At at the equator in high doses, especially at the vernal and autumnal equinoxes. UVC is mostly screened out by the atmosphere. So if we look at at a simulation here, at the equator, the UVC is mostly screened out or absorbed by the atmospheric oxygen and ozone 
a small but biologically significant fraction of UVB penetrates and a huge amount of UVA travels with the visible light down to the Earth's surface. So the equator is bathed in a moderate amount of UVB, in fact fairly high at the equinoxes and a lot of UVA. And these wavelengths have specific biological activity. I'm going to come back to this theme of we evolved under the sun many times. So in early genus Homo, mostly naked, potentially very sweaty skin, the dark pigmentation being the essential substitute for hair, fur protection against solar ultraviolet radiation. Most mammals, wherever they're living, are protected from ultraviolet radiation by a heavy coat of hair. If you lose hair, you have to compensate somehow. And the major compensation in the human lineage is the evolution of permanent dark protective pigmentation. Eumelanin is the molecule that I'll be talking about a lot, sometimes just referring to it as melanin. This is an amazing pigment that has been used over and over again by hundreds of millions of different kinds of organisms that live on the Earth's surface and in shallow parts of marine environments. Eumelanin is the superior absorber of ultraviolet radiation and visible light. It's dark, very dark brown to the eye, and it's this beautiful, incredible multifunctional molecule that's able to absorb the UV wavelengths, and as it does so, the large polymer structure uncoils a little bit, absorbing energy. It also has the ability chemically to neutralize free, so-called free radicals or reactive oxygen species that are produced in cells as UV impinges on organisms' surfaces. So eumelanin has been used over and over and over again, and this is what we see that is manipulated through an easy genetic series of changes in the homo lineage in order to bring about dark pigmentation to protect the skin of our active ancestors. And without going into great detail about the mechanisms of this, there are many genes that control pigmentation, probably over 120 that have, that have some role in regulating pigmentation in mammals and some role in humans. But one of the most important at this point in our evolution is one called the melanocortin-1 receptor locus, which determines the configuration of this important protein which exists on the surface of the melanin-producing cells called melanocytes. Basically, in darkly pigmented people, and here I'm going to refer to our ancestors, early members of the genus Homo, what we see is that this locus is under strong natural selection to lose all variation so that this switch effectively switches on the production of eumelanin, the photoprotective natural sunscreen, and 
reduces the production of pheomelanin, the yellow-red form of melanin that we see in, uh, in red-colored mammals and primates of various kinds, in red-haired people, in freckles on human skin. Pheomelanin is not photoprotective at all. Eumelanin is highly photoprotective, and this was the switch that was thrown. And so we can summarize by saying in early Homo, we have functionally naked or functionally hairless skin, even though the hairs were retained. We have enhanced barrier functions. I'm not going to talk a lot about this, but we have enhanced ability to repel water, to repel microorganisms uh, through a variety of different uh, compounds that are actually very good at fighting uh, uh, viruses and bacteria and parasites, and we have enhanced water protective functions. So we have this, this wonderful series of barrier functions that also helps to prevent excess abrasion. We might not think of our skin as being very abrasion resistant, but it's actually extremely tough. And it's darkly pigmented. So early homo skin is very, very different from that of our close primate relatives. When we look at all people around the world today, all indigenous people, and measure their skin reflectance, this is data that we collated from reports collected by anthropologists and geographers and human biologists over many decades. We found that skin reflectance is very highly correlated with ultraviolet radiation to the extent that over 86% of total variation in skin pigmentation in modern humans can be accounted for by variation in autumnal levels of ultraviolet radiation alone. That's a very large percentage of variation that can be explained by one variable. And so if we look at a, at a mock-up of human skin here. We've got the, the skin layer here, the epidermis, there's the dermis underneath, and the hypodermis. Here's the atmosphere, ozone, and oxygen. UVB at the equator is attenuated by atmospheric oxygen and ozone and is able to penetrate into the epidermis, and it's slowed down a lot by the dark pigment in the epidermis. But some manages to get through, and that turns out to be incredibly biologically important. And a lot of UVA manages to get through, although the eumelanin in the bottom of the epidermis here is quite a good sunscreen and reduces the amount of UVA. What happens when UVA impacts naked skin? it causes all sorts of interesting damage to DNA in skin cells. And for the longest time, anthropologists and biologists mused that this must be the major reason that protective pigmentation evolved, to protect against damage to DNA, which could cause skin cancer. But in the 1960s, a very good biologist pointed out that, hold on, People get skin cancer mostly after their reproductive years are completed. This cannot have a selective effect. Skin cancer has no evolutionary potency because it mostly affects people when they're old. 
And very few skin cancers affect people during reproductive years, so we must, must seek another reason for the presence of melanin. And this is where we came in. And it was in the early 1990s that I realized that what the connection between ultraviolet radiation and reproductive success could be was actually mediated by a different set of molecules, one of which was the B vitamin folate. The reason that I identified folate initially was that folate and its close biochemical relatives are sensitive to ultraviolet radiation, especially to ultraviolet B radiation. And that folate is also incredibly important in, in human development because it helps to fuel DNA replication, DNA repair, and DNA modification or methylation. In other words, folate is a linchpin in determining whether DNA in cells, specifically in skin cells, is going to be healthy. Folate needs to be protected. And one of the reasons that this came to my attention in the early 1990s is that it was at that time when people were beginning to realize the importance of folate as a determinant of maternal health and early embryonic and fetal health because of the implication of folate deficiencies in birth defects. We get our folate from green leafy vegetables and citrus fruits and whole grains. We can't store it. We have to continue to ingest it. And there are lots of environmental agents that can break down folate, not just ultraviolet radiation, but alcohol. So we need to constantly replenish our, our folate intake. And with folate being required for all of these important functions, we need to have diets rich in folate. In the absence of diets rich in folate, problems in early embryogenesis can ensue. This is what you look like at 23 to 26 days of embryonic development. Your simple... Uh, plate of cells is undergoing the process of neurulation or neural tube formation. This process requires prodigious amounts of DNA production, cell division, cell migration, and if it all doesn't happen, then we can have a neural tube defect that affects the cranial end or the middle part of the spine or the lower part of the spine, and many of these are lethal. So having made this connection between a physical force, a physical influence, ultraviolet radiation, a molecule, a vitamin, folate, and a process, neurulation, neural tube formation, and reproductive success, we felt that we were onto something that was worth pursuing. And this really started me on this quest of, of studying the evolution of skin pigmentation over 25 years ago. So now when we think about the effects of ultraviolet radiation on the, on the human organism, we think about primarily folate metabolism involved with birth defects. And now I want to bring in another chapter, how folate is necessary in the regulation 
of temperature, of cutaneous, of the, of the sweating reaction in the skin. Remember how important naked, sweaty skin is for a hominin that's walking and running around, especially in hot environments. The skin is the main event for liberating excess body heat. And it turns out that folate is incredibly important in safeguarding the process by which this dilation of blood vessels in the skin provides, thereby provides fluid to the eccrine sweat glands that then give sweat to the surface of the skin. So here we bring in another molecular character, nitric oxide. I'm not going to elaborate uh, long on this, but it's a fascinating mechanism. Folate affects nitric oxide in the body. Nitric oxide is this really important biochemical messenger. And in the skin, many different signals turn on nitric oxide, the production of nitric oxide, and excite the release of nitric oxide. And it turns out that folate is incredibly important in the activation of nitric oxide. And then the vasodilation that actually occurs in the skin prior to sweat glands starting to sweat is triggered by ultraviolet A radiation penetrating the skin. So you have folate fueling this process that is kicked off by ultraviolet A radiation. So we have nitric oxide here in the skin and in the cutaneous blood vessels just a little bit of vasodilation. And the UVA actually excites the cutaneous and systemic vasodilation uh, that is important in the control of blood pressure. So we can really begin or end this part of the lecture about the evolution of dark protective pigmentation by saying that, that really, as far as we can tell, the critical role played by dark pigmentation is protection of folate availability for these important reasons. And that we have this invariant melanocortin-1 receptor locus and that we find in most modern African populations and African diaspora populations. And that if we dissect the genome, and many of my colleagues have worked diligently to do this, to look at the evolution of pigmentation genes, we can see that, uh, that there was a so-called selective sweep whereby this locus lost all of its functional variation under these stringent conditions of natural selection. And we'll see that this situation changes for some populations later in human evolution. So during the course of the evolution of the human lineage in Africa, from early Homo through early Homo sapiens, here about 200,000 years ago to the modern day, we have the evolution of darkly pigmented, potentially sweaty skin. And people can stay healthy, very, very healthy, under intense sun because 
the protective eumelanin still allows a little bit of ultraviolet radiation that turns out to be important. But we have many colors of human skin. This entire glorious sepia rainbow, how did it come about? The story of this is one of the most fascinating and important ones of human evolution. And it has to do, at least in part, with the importance of another molecule in the skin. So here's our darkly pigmented skin. Under very strong sunlight at the equator, there's still enough UVB that penetrates the epidermis to start the process of producing vitamin D. Vitamin D is the second major vitamin that is in our cast of characters and turns out to be just as important to reproductive success as folate. But UVB is only available strongly within the tropics year in and year out. What happens when people start dispersing out of the tropics? Let's look at what happens to ultraviolet radiation in the northern hemisphere in, at the winter solstice. UVC is completely absorbed again by the atmosphere, as is UVB. UVA comes to the Earth's surface with visible light. So although it's, it's attenuated by the atmosphere, by the thick pack of atmosphere, there's still a lot that makes it to the Earth's surface. But UVB, nothing for a good part of the year, depending on the latitude. This has enormous consequences for human dispersals and human survival at high latitudes, whether we're talking about the northern or the extreme southern hemisphere. Because ultraviolet radiation, although mostly bad for us and mostly bad for most organisms, has the one important positive effect of stimulating the production of vitamin D in the skin. From the cholesterol-like molecule 7-DHC, which is present in the dermis of your skin, the UVB penetrates, converts that 7-DHC to pre-vitamin D3 in the skin, and over the course of a few chemical steps, uh, conversions, we have biologically active vitamin D that's produced. What happens under partial UVB, seasonal UVB, or low levels and low levels of UVA? Well, we have some vitamin D that's formed, but it takes a much longer time. These two guys, similar in age, sunny day in Northern California. The man on the left can make vitamin D in his skin, assuming that this is summer sunlight with plenty of UVB. He can make vitamin D in his skin at a rate five to six times faster than the man on the right. Both of them will be able to produce enough vitamin D at the end of the day or at the end of several hours to to suit and to meet their physiological needs. But the man on the right will take a longer time to do so. This was never an issue for people who were outdoors all the time, but it is an issue today. And it was an issue for darkly pigmented people who were beginning to disperse outside of equatorial latitudes 
during the Pleistocene. And we now really want to turn to the dispersal of modern humans, Homo sapiens, beginning around 200,000 years ago. The best molecular and paleontological estimates place the origin of our species around 200,000 years ago in Africa. Most of the evolution of Homo sapiens occurs in Africa. All of the tremendous linguistic, cultural, technological, artistic differentiation of our species, the tremendous evolution of our quintessentially human traits occurs in this early phase of Homo sapiens evolution until 70 or 80,000 years ago. So this tremendously active Homo sapiens evolution phase occurring here with dispersals within Africa occurring. Beginning around 60 to 70,000 years ago, and this number changes in light of new evidence all the time, but we'll just stick with about 60 to 70,000 years ago, we have the first egress of populations through the Afro-Arabian Peninsula along the southern coast of South Asia and into the hinterland of Central Asia. Down 50 to 60,000 years ago into Southeast Asia and then 40 to 50,000 years ago from sort of a staging post here near the Black Sea Populations dispersing both westerly and northwesterly into Europe and northeasterly into Asia, northeastern Asia, into regions with very low and highly seasonal levels of ultraviolet radiation. This, this dispersal is sped along by the incredible cultural competence of these people. All of these years of evolution, we had this incredibly sophisticated and varied toolkit. We had language. We were behaviorally modern in every sense. And so these dispersals occurred faster than those of other mammals. But what happened? We were going into these areas that were really very different from our, our ancestral solar environment. And it's important to remember that probably during individual lifetimes, people didn't travel a lot. The idea of sort of going somewhere. Well, yes, you'd be looking for food and you'd be escaping predators, but there wouldn't be active moves very often. That most people spent time out of doors and without sewn clothing. The earliest common occurrences of needles for the preparation of sewn clothing, of tailored clothes, about 20,000 years ago. Humans were hoofing it big time, uh, dispersing with mostly naked skin and without sewn clothes. They certainly had the ability to use animal hides and possibly to use plant materials but they didn't have the ability to tailor close-fitting clothing. So our skin was the primary interface with the environment. And throughout the year, being outdoors, ultraviolet radiation varied by season, and we adapted to different levels of temperature and ultraviolet radiation through biological and cultural modifications. Vitamin D is incredibly important in this. 
how did we maintain the ability to make vitamin D when we were dispersing into latitudes that had no or virtually no UVB throughout the year? We need vitamin D to build strong bones. In the absence of vitamin D to absorb, to help us absorb calcium from our diet in early development, infants and children can develop this bowing of the bones, nutritional rickets, really, really bad, especially if it persists into later life. A young woman who suffers from rickets throughout her early life will develop a deformed pelvis, the outlet of which is compressed so that she cannot give birth normally. Natural selection, big time. We now recognize that in addition to that classical function of vitamin D, that vitamin D controls important functions of the immune system and of cellular growth and proliferation in the body. There are vitamin D receptors on virtually every organ, whether we're talking about the brain, the pancreas, the skeletal muscle, as well as bone. So our health turns out to be regulated in part by this vitamin, which we never questioned in our early evolution. Vitamin D was being produced in our bodies just because we were alive and outdoors. But when humans are now living in high latitudes, being outdoors isn't enough. And at the highest latitudes, what we find is that people can only sustain year-round habitation if they have maximally depigmented skin and if they have cultural adaptations for ingestion of vitamin D-rich foods. Their biology and their culture change. So this dispersal involved both biological and cultural adaptations and what we call the vitamin D compromise. And the first element of this compromise is skin depigmentation. I don't talk about so much light skin as depigmented skin. Depigmented skin is a derived condition from our ancestral darkly pigmented skin. And we predicted this even before there was any genomic evidence, that these individuals resulting from two sort of sub-lineages of modern humans dispersing into high latitudes would have evolved independently. And how beautiful that in the course of the last 15 years, genomicists looking at pigmentation genes have found that these groups of people, Northwest Northwest Europeans and Northeastern Asians have independently evolved depigmented skin. One of the genetic loci is similar, but most of the others aren't. This is music to the ears of any evolutionary biologist, that you would have a selective force so strong that it would call upon whatever genetic variation was available, and we've got a big palette, as it were, of pigmentation genes, that we would use whatever variation was available to produce lightly pigmented or depigmented skin. And now we know that there are many loci in many populations that are associated with depigmentation under strong positive selection. And the elucidation of the different pathways that have been used in different populations 
We now know that depigmentation occurred at least three times, and I would guess it occurred probably even more than that in Homo sapiens, in addition to having occurred most likely in Neanderthals as well, our distant cousins. So what happens? Uh, under strong selective pressure, low UVB at high latitudes, we have depigmentation, loss of eumelanin pigmentation, most eumelanin pigmentation, so that we have excellent vitamin D production. And this is the primary selective force for the evolution of depigmented skin. An example of the vitamin D compromise at work, and I'm going to take one of many. This is a very extreme example. People started moving into Scotland, modern people, about 10,000 years ago, and mostly inhabiting coastal settlements. The people have undergone in situ maximal loss of eumelanin pigmentation. Not surprising, even on a sunny day at the summer solstice, it is not very sunny in northern Scotland. And there are many days when there's very, very little ultraviolet B. So how did people survive? Maximally depigmented skin, but it turns out that even with no, no natural sunscreen, they could not make enough vitamin D in the skin to satisfy their physiological requirements. So year-round habitation required technology and culture to harvest vitamin D-rich foods. People lived near the coast. They ate lots of cod fish, cod liver, cod liver stews. People in the hinterland dried fish, kept fish on their, the roofs of their cottages, and ate other sources of protein like blood sausage that had vitamin D. And they stayed healthy. So the vitamin D compromise also involved sort of the tinkering, the genetic tinkering of genes that affect vitamin D production in the skin and its metabolism and the introduction of vitamin D-rich diets in many populations. But let's not forget vasodilation. What happened? This depigmentation also allows enhanced penetration of UVA so that healthy levels of vasodilation can occur reducing blood pressure and allowing sweat glands to get the fluid that they need from the, are the expanded arterioles. So here we have a healthy situation with a nicely vasodilating little artery, and people are healthy. In skin pigmentation, thus, we can really see as one of the most interesting evolutionary compromises that we've been able to describe. There is operating here what evolutionary biologists and geneticists would call a dual cline, one that emphasizes photoprotection, maximal eumelanin pigmentation at the equator in other high UV environments, and a cline in the opposite direction, emphasizing depigmented skin that permits photosynthesis of vitamin D maximally under very seasonal and low UVB conditions. A beautiful system 
honed by natural selection. And so the, the eumelanin concentration in human skin is very much related to the intensity of ultraviolet radiation. And in middle latitudes, we have people who can tan. And we are now looking at the genetic architecture of tanning. This is some of my past graduate students. And we're finding that in all sorts of different populations, whether they're in the circumediterranean or North Africa or Southeast Asia that have tanning ability, they have different suites of genes that can be turned on and off or on at various seasons when there's high amounts of ultraviolet radiation. So this is really, really exciting stuff. The tanning, too, has evolved independently. Similar skin colors have evolved independently many times under the same UV conditions and using different combinations of genes. So these three darkly pigmented individuals, one from Africa, one from Australia, one from southern India, have darkly pigmented, beautifully, naturally sunscreen-rich skin. And the genetic architecture of their dark pigmentation is different in all of these cases. And very importantly, skin pigmentation genetically is mostly independent of other physical traits. So whether we're talking about hair color, eye color, nose shape, ear shape, or other physical traits, skin pigmentation, for the most part, is independent. So these, these groups of characteristics that have sometimes been put together by people for various reasons are not. They don't sort of walk in lockstep genetically in a group. They aren't. They aren't connected. And they have undergone independent histories through our own history. So we now have this beautiful sepia rainbow of modern humans that has evolved in different parts of the world. Over time, as humans, modern humans have dispersed into different parts of the world, similar pigmentations and different ones evolving under similar UV conditions with different genetic mechanisms. It is a beautiful story of evolution of the human body under natural selection. I tell people, remember, remember Chuck, right? We, as, as teachers, whether we're teaching in our living room with our children and grandchildren, or whether we're teaching in our classrooms, we're always seeking examples of natural selection and evolution on the human body. Here is one of the best. And, you know, I urge people to use this because it is understandable. Everybody has skin. This is something that people can grasp. Skin pigmentation is a natural compromise determined by natural selection. And so we can marvel at this beautiful evolutionary compromise, and tomorrow we will consider what this means, what this beautiful compromise means, especially when people start moving around and interacting in ways that weren't predicted by our ancestors 20 or 50,000 years ago. 
Thank you very much. So in, in one of the very last slides, you showed the different people with different colors. The person in Alaska had yes. kind of dark pigment. Can you oh, explain that one? Yes. I didn't plant you in the audience, but I'm so glad that you asked that question. The People always ask me about, about the dark pigmentation of Inuit. Uh, Inuit and many of the circumpolar peoples have great tanning ability. When you look at their... Uh, unexposed skin. It's sort of moderately pigmented. But they have tremendous ability to make melanin in their skin as a result of direct solar radiation, but also from UV that bounces off the surface of the, of the water and snow and ice. So how do they manage? So here they are, super high latitudes, Arctic Circle and above, how do they manage? They get their vitamin D entirely through their diet. And when we look at the, uh, at the culture of Inuit people, it is built around the harvesting of vitamin D-rich food. Whether we're talking about uh, spearing whales or seals, sea lions, or eating oily fish, or in the hinterland, chasing caribou or reindeer, depending on which part of the, of the Arctic you're in, you are pursuing vitamin D-rich prey. And basically, people can maintain good health, Inuit people, uh, when they are eating vitamin D-rich foods. As soon as they start moving to settlements and abandon their traditional diet, they have terrific problems of vitamin D deficiency, which are now a cause of great public health concern and mitigation. But, but the, the fascinating thing is that natural selection has worked to enhance tanning through genes complexes that we still don't understand. Enhance tanning to protect against this UVA load, in a sense, knowing that the, the vitamin D is coming from dietary sources. I'm from the Department of Nutritional Sciences, yes. and I'm fascinated by what you said about human foods and human food cultures and their role in evolution. Yes. But this makes me think of another element of human food culture, and that is when you look at a lot of different cultures, there's something about hot foods and yeah. cold foods. And I wonder if the origin of the ideas of hot foods and cold foods may have actually been something that helped us to walk out of Africa. You mean hot Hot as far as cooked or hot spicy? Or, or what people culturally call, oh, that's a hot food or that's a cold food. Yes, and yes. And if you ask people from many different cultures yes. what their grandmothers taught yes. them, you find a lot of different answers, but so many of them talking about hot foods and cold foods. Yes, and, and there's a lot of discussion about this, you know, that, that some foods are eaten, especially in the winter, to, you know, to help protect you against the temperature fluctuations. I, you know, we've never, to my knowledge, no one has actually looked at the you know, relative thermogenesis of these so-called you know, hot foods and cold foods. In, uh, in traditional East Asian cultures, for instance, you know, eating 
turtle eating snake uh, in the in the winter time is considered very important, and avoiding those foods in the summer is equally important because they're said to generate more heat. I would love to know if there was actually more thermogenesis that was gained from these so-called hot or cold foods, but to my knowledge, no one has looked at this. Thank you for that talk, Doctor. My, my question involves our very hairy ancestors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and would it be fair to say that uh, their primary method or system of cooling was something other than evaporative oh, cooling? Yes. Uh, a g- very good question. So with our, with our hairy ancestors and relatives, modern monkeys and uh, apes today actually lose body heat through their skin. Through, you know, through their hairy skin, and they have some sweat glands. So they are able to sweat a little bit. There are some monkeys, um, the Patus monkey of East and West Africa, has a relatively thin coat of hair and quite a few eccrine sweat glands. It is the most fast-running of the non-human primates, and people have looked at the patus monkey as sort of a model for for human sweating, that there was natural selection for thinning of hair and increased density of eccrine sweat glands. But the key thing with all of these primates is that they did lose heat through the surfaces of their body. There isn't a specialized panting mechanism or nasal cooling mechanism as in other mammals. A few years ago, my husband and I uh, visited the prehistoric museum in Bordeaux on our way to yes. Lesco. And there was a mock-up of uh, a small family of Homo neanderthalensis, yes. which absolutely fascinated me because they had light skin, yeah. nearly hairless, yes. red hair, yes. and they looked like a guy, I, you know, yeah. a lot of guys I've, no- yes. I've known. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, you, you were, I know you were careful in your use yes. of homo and so forth. And I know there were, besides the Neanderthalensis, there were, you know, homo ergaster, homo yes. erectus, I mean, many other homo species. But having seen the, yeah. first of all, was it inaccurate? And then how do you differentiate the, was it accurate that they had light skin and, and fairly hairless? I mean, yeah, the rib cages were more robust. Yes. But, in terms of the skin, I fascinated. Yeah, this is a, a very good question. We know that the the loss of body hair in our lineage, in the Homo lineage, occurred, you know, probably more than a million and a half years ago. So, the ancestor of the ancestor of ne- the Neanderthals was a mostly hairless, sweaty member of the genus Homo. So whatever kind of species designation you want to give, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, the the predecessor to Neanderthals, this was a mostly hairless hominin. We have inferred, even before genetic evidence, that that a hominin that would have been living deep in the past in a middle latitude or in, let's say, about 40 degrees north latitude in Europe 
would have lost most of its pigmentation. So we hypothesized this in, in one of our papers. But then, uh, just about 10 years ago, using ancient DNA techniques, an excellent Spanish human geneticist, Carl's Lalueza Fox, was able to look at the pigmentation gene, the MC1R locus specifically, of a very important group of Neanderthals from Spain. And what he was able to determine, and this was a very clever piece of genetics that was undertaken, he was able to reconstruct the activity of this particular gene. So even though there was no Neanderthal there to sort of inhabit the gene, if you know what I mean, um, he was able to show that the gene product would have been light skin or mostly depigmented skin. So they actually used the ancient DNA to reconstruct the action of the, the melanin-producing cells and reconstructed that most individuals would have been lightly pigmented and at least they estimated you know, around 10 or 20 percent would have had red hair. You know, I think that's a bit more of a, of a sort of question. But there's no doubt that the strength of natural selection was great when humans were dis, uh, dispersing into high latitudes. So it was either be, be depigmented or have a lot of vitamin D in the diet. And I would guess in the history of various human species and in various Homo sapiens groups, we have all sorts of mixing and matching, that there's strong selection occurring, and some of that is going to be met through genetic modifications of readily available genetic variation when it's there, and other times it's going to be met by dietary changes, and other times it's not going to be met at all, and the populations become extinct. I'm going to ask you a silly question, if that's all right. Go ahead. So if you have a black and white cat and you shave it, <laughs> its skin is also black and white patty. Yes. So why, I mean, obviously that's a carnivore, but why is it that human skin and pelage coloration is so uniform on yes. an individual? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's not a silly question at all. We see throughout primates, and especially throughout apes, that we, become, we lose our pattern. So there are some monkeys that have beautifully patterned coats and that have similarly patterned skin under the coats. But as soon as we get into the ape lineage, we, we lose, and especially the large, the African ape lineage, we lose all of that patterning for reasons that we, genetic reasons that we still don't understand. So when you shave an orangutan, you shave a, a, a gorilla or a, a chimpanzee, it's all the same color underneath. And this, this is a real question as to, you know, why, why we lose this, the relationship between the hair color and the underlying skin color. And this is, as I say, it is an open question that primate biologists who are studying skin and hair coloration have yet to answer. But a very good one, not silly at all. 
Um, hi, I have two quick questions. Yes. The first one is, will you be covering the following in the following lectures um, what some refer to as the epidemic of vitamin D deficiencies? And my second question is, how has pig skin pigmentation evolved independently from other phenotypes if melanin is responsible for the color of not only skin, but our eyes and our hair color? The first question is easy. Yes. Okay. I will be talking at length about vitamin D deficiency. And what's interesting about the, about the melanin systems in, you know, in the hair and eyes is that they are not under a strong natural selection. So having, you know, it's important to have hair on the head. And we, we know that the, the hair on the head, scalp hair, does serve an important thermoregulatory function on the surface of the, of the head. But the color of the hair probably hasn't been under strong natural selection. But, and, and we know also that it seems to be controlled by many fewer genes than skin pigmentation. To make a long and interesting story short, what has happened in the history of human dispersals is that there hasn't been so much selection of hair color and texture or eye color, but rather loss of genetic variation. So that when you have a limited palette of, of genes and you lose some of that variation because the dispersing populations are small, then you're, you're sort of stuck with all dark eyes. If you look at, at Eastern Asian populations, all individuals have darkly pigmented hair and eyes. And I would venture that that's not a product of natural selection. It was an accident of small population effect in human dispersals. And that similarly, in Northwestern Europe, where we know we have strong population bottlenecks occurring in the late Pleistocene and, and early Holocene, that we have, you know, repeated genetic bottlenecks and loss of variation. So we might get, you know, some really interesting variation that's being thrown up in, in hair color and in eye color, but this isn't, it hasn't been selected for. Initially, it is there because of a small population effect, I would venture, and then later, it may become acted upon by natural or by social selection. We do have evidence for social and sexual selection of certain of these traits in certain populations. But I think it's really important that we look carefully at the range of, of, of genetic and population factors that are occurring and the sequence in which they acted, and that we don't just say, oh, yes, yeah, blondes evolved under sexual selection. No. It was a genetic accident probably then followed by some social and sexual selection. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, two sort of questions. One, um, why is hair regionally retained on yes. the body? And a related question, not for myself, but for those in the audience who might care. Is there a selective advantage or disadvantage to male pattern baldness? <laughs> yes, a common question. 
uh, usually put to me by people with less scalp hair. But uh, in answer to your first question, this is a really good question. And, you know, answers to why did we retain these regional, you know, accumulations of hair? And in addition to pubic hair and axillary hair and scalp hair, why do men have facial hair? The jury is still out to be generous on most of these things. I think scalp hair, we can make a strong case for the fact that it does locally protect the scalp from solar radiation and overheating, and that it allows sort of a, a space in which the skin can sweat and lose, lose heat. So I think that's important. With pubic and axillary hair, I think the primary function is dispersal of pheromones because the apocrine glands that are concentrated there secrete important molecules that are used in chemical communication. We do our level best to silence them, right, in modern societies, and we consider it antisocial when we can smell somebody. But smell is part of our, of our armamentarium of communication. And this has been very important, and we know that it still is important in, in sexual attractiveness, even though we do our very best to, you know, eliminate smells. So I think this is a fascinating and still ill-studied area. With beard hair, there's been a lot of interesting recent work on beards as sexual signals, as signals of male maturity and male age, because the beard changes color generally more rapidly than other parts of body hair. And so not only does the fullness of the male beard indicate sort of a fully sort of mature male, but also the change of color can be a very accurate chronological indicator of male age. And that may have been important in the past. So these are, you know, interesting hypotheses, all of them, that have not been tested very well. There is still a huge amount of work to be done on hair. Your very interesting hairy timeline <laughs> at the beginning showed a rather rapid loss of hair yes. in the middle. Is it real? And if so, yeah. what do you think caused it? Yes. Well, the, the, the rapid loss of hair was probably fairly rapid. And, and for this, we really need to look to the paleontologists and look at the transition from an, sort of an Australopithecine to, a, to a, a modern homo skeleton. That occurred over the course of probably a half million years. So, you know, I, I can't really say how quickly the change in skin would have occurred, but certainly going along with a, a skeleton that is fit for walking and running, we know that there would have been buildup of excess body heat under hot environmental conditions. And if the only physiological mechanisms available to you are from the surface of the body, 
through, through radiant and evaporative heat loss, there would have been strong natural selection for complete loss of, of functional body hair. And so I would guess that transition was quite rapid. And that little sort of signaling and evolutionary developmental biology toward increased differentiation of eccrine sweat glands, I think the switch was thrown and it probably can, that the genetic architecture of that change was under strong positive selection. I have a very young niece who just had a kidney transplant. Yes. And she's of Scottish heritage. Mm -hmm. Um, And they've said people who've had kidney transplants, of course, they're taking immune suppressants. Yes. And the doctors are really dismayed that oftentimes they'll get skin cancer within five years. Yes. So I was just wondering, shouldn't they all be taking vitamin D? Uh, This is is a really good question, and I talked to... I talk a lot to nephrologists and kidney transplant surgeons all around the world about this because it is one of the of the major challenges to keep people health to keep people healthy with respect to vitamin D and in the case of your relative with lightly pigmented skin it is really important that she stay out of the sun so I would say that she needs to talk to her physicians quickly and efficiently about what program of vitamin D supplementation she should take to stay healthy. Because the, the majority of, or I should say many, if not the majority of kidney transplant patients are badly vitamin D deficient. So, and what about folate, or is that a totally different issue? Folate is a completely different story, and folate is, is, you know, you can get it really, really easily. There are no easy dietary sources of vitamin D unless you, you know, really seek out mackerel and other, you know, specific kinds of oily fish. But, but folate you can get from green leafy vegetables mostly of any kind, citrus fruits, whole grains. You can get folate from a variety of sources. So it's easy to top up on folate, less easy to top up on vitamin D. So then supplement. Yes, a supplement, but, but talk to the physicians to determine the dosage. Okay, well, let's thank our speaker once again, and thanks very much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.